In partnership with Paizo, the No Direction Network welcomes you to our PaizoCon Online 2023 seminar coverage. And that's why hey, I let everyone everybody. have free archetype. Oh, hey, we're on. Oh, that's, hey, stop, stop <laughs> spilling our, our real secrets. Welcome to PaizoCon Ask GMs, everybody. Um, uh, my name is James Jacobs. I'm the Narrative Creative Director for Pathfinder. And uh, in this panel, we're going to be answering GM questions. Uh, if you want to ask questions about uh, just generalized Pathfinder or Starfinder stuff, we'll do our best to answer those too. But the focus of this uh, seminar is going to be just ask us whatever you want. Um, one thing I want to get out there right away is uh, this is not the place to ask about like remaster uh, and that sort of thing. We've got plenty of other panels to do that. So uh, let me turn it over to my amazing panels in companion or whatever. I don't know what we call them. Other panelists, introduce yourselves. Hi, I'm Vanessa Hoskins. I'm a developer on the narrative team. Uh, I have been jamming for far too long. Uh, I had a five star 300 table record for Pathfinder first edition. And I've also just jammed and played a lot of seconds. So that's where I'm coming from. <laughs> uh. Hi, uh, and I'm Phil St. John. I'm one of the editors. Um, I've been DMing for, I've been GMing in general for about 10 years. I've been GMing Pathfinder specifically for the last five. So, yeah. Cool. So, yeah, we'll be taking questions mostly from the stream chat here in Twitch. Um, first of all, when you went full screen, Vanessa, I want to call out your fan. That's the exact same one I've got in my room here going right now. So, oh, yeah. Oh, back here? Yeah. Mine's off. I find it's too noisy oh. for this mic. So oh, really? if by the end, yeah, yeah. If by the end of the session, I'm just dripping with sweat, you'll know that that's why. Okay. We're still fan buddies. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's get our questions going. So first up, uh, folks are talking a little bit about what are the benefits of virtual tabletops? Uh, so uh, why don't we uh, all take a turn uh, talking about virtual tabletops that we've used. If we haven't used them, that's fine too. But uh, what are the benefits of GMing with a virtual tabletop, Vanessa? Oh, well, quite a few. Um, so it depends on which one you're using. I've the, the main two that I've used are Roll20 and Foundry, uh, both partners with Paizo, and you can get a lot of Pathfinder materials there. I find that Roll20 in general is easier if you just need a quick place to share a screen and some tokens and sit down and roll some dice. Uh, I think it's a very plug-and-play sort of experience. Uh, however, uh, for long-running campaigns and things that I know are going to be dedicated to be online, especially if there are more than one session, I prefer Foundry. Foundry is a lot more automated, so uh, there's a lot more gadgets and tools and things that'll happen. Like, uh, it's really quick to apply damage, and the newest release that just came out, I think, a couple days ago, automatically applies persistent damage as a condition, for example, and rolls the damage for you and rolls the flat check for you. And it just kind of, it helps you along a lot. Now, if you go back to, well, I'm running a long game, but I don't want it to do everything. I want to sit there and roll physical dice and just have a shared experience. I think roll 20 is going to be better for you. Yes, uh, I could say I could have, I've also used uh, roll 20 and Foundry. And actually, um, the biggest benefit, I think, of virtual tabletops is the ability to connect with people uh, that you don't have to be sitting at the table with. Like, this seems like the obvious thing, but like, that is the reason that I've been playing. I, I have a table that I play at a, uh, on Friday night that has been running for 15 years since my freshman year of college with the same people uh, because we've been using virtual tabletops the entire time. Um, it's, you know, it's a party that includes my younger brother, my friend from college, people that I don't get to see anymore in person because they live in Texas and I live here. Uh, and we hang out every Friday with a virtual tabletop because we play on Roll20. Uh, so even though we live, you know, what, 3,000 miles apart, uh, it's easy enough to get in contact. You know, you can play across the world. Um, heck, I, I've made friends in Germany that I play with over Roll20 and Foundry. Uh, so, like, you've got the automation, you've got the experience, of course. And, like, heck, I, I have played with people, uh, uh, virtual tabletops have done really fun, interesting things with both Roll20 and Foundry in person. but 
it seems obvious, but the most obvious benefit is just the, the, the convenient connection of being able to pull people together even when you're not able to be together. Cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much in the same exact boat with Roll20 and Foundry. Um, one of the things I actually really like about virtual tabletops is the, just the visual and uh, the audio elements that you can add into it. Um, especially if you're using like a, a professionally made adventure or something like that. It's a lot more immersive in how you can present the world. And it makes it easier for the GM to present the entire situation because the GM is the window into the game. Uh, if you as a GM don't mention something, the players have no idea it's there. And having like a really detailed map or um, just having everything all automated there for everybody to look at makes uh, that a lot easier and focus on the, on the gameplay itself. So, uh, let's see how... Sorry, I just want to say, it's nice to see the progress that has been made uh, in the last decade with the virtual tabletops. Because when I started playing, um, the virtual tabletop I used was this homebrewed uh, program that somebody made that was passed around on a flash drive that uh, was not mm. browser-based. It was something that we got a flash drive version of. You had to program everything yourself. Um, so, yeah, the modern... The, the evolution to Roll20 and Boundary has been great. Cool. All right. Uh, the Real Unicorn asks, how do we handle recall knowledge in our games? Uh, how do you make sure it's useful, but not something that uh, the player characters lose if they if they have a couple of bad rolls? Uh, Saul, that's, a, that's for you. <laughs> uh, what was the second half of the question? Not something the player characters lose if they have a couple of bad rolls? Yeah, like how if... if um, the adventure has requires you to succeed at recall knowledge to go forward. How do you handle it if everybody fails to recall recall knowledge checks? Uh, honestly, the way that I usually do it is that if the players kind of fall short on the fall knowledge too many times, the, the easiest way to do it, well, the easiest way to do it is to try to make sure that the uh, plot is not hidden in a recall knowledge check. That the recall knowledge is mostly done to like flush things out, um, which is how we try to write most of like the uh, OP scenarios. Um, but when I'm working with my own adventures, uh, what I try to do, when, when I do wind up in that scenario, my the way I try to do it is to have, if the players don't suss out that information themselves, uh, an NPC can always provide, you know, a bit of gossip here or there, a bit of uh, expert, expert, a bit of expertise that it would make sense the players wouldn't necessarily know. It makes sense that they don't always know everything. Yeah, that's true. Cool. I'm going to jump around these questions to get more in and just like fire them at each of you. Somebody has <laughs> something really exciting they want to break in on, of course. And uh, Vanessa, here's a uh, an interesting one. Uh, the rules say that an action needs to end for another to be used. What does someone do if they want to, say, jump and then grab something? I think that's fine. Uh, one thing to remember is that the rules are a guideline. So if someone's like, well, I want to leap because I have like a really jumpy character and then grab an edge or I want to leap and then try and climb up the wall, even though, you know, that might be hard to do. It's like, sure, that's that's fine. I mean, I grab an edge as a reaction, so okay. But I think it's fine to interrupt it. Um, I think that if it gets a abusive like if you notice that like oh i see so you're basically leaping and attacking every time instead of taking the sudden leap feat which you have access to all right maybe we need to think about this uh but at the same time if someone's trying to do something interesting do something that's going to make the scene come alive i'd say find a way to make that happen uh even if you know that there is a, you know, a certain archetype or certain way to get a feat that does exactly that. Let them do it, uh, but maybe increase the DC a little bit. Um, something like that that incentivizes, yeah, you can get the feat. Uh, make them spend a hero point, for example. It's like, oh, well, there's a feat that does that. If you spend a hero point, I'll let you do it. So always try to find a way to say yes, I think, um, if it's cool enough for the the scene. I, I'm a very rule of cool sort of GM. I, I want everyone to remember the game and how epic that moment was and not how well we adhered to all of the rules. <laughs> cool. Uh, here's one I think that I feel called out on. Uh, question. Hex crawling. Uh -oh. uh, this is from TRDG11. Hex crawling can get kind of dry after a while. Uh, what are some ways to make it more engaging for the players? A-L-A Kingmaker. Um... 
<laughs> the thing with Kingmaker in particular is it's a sandbox, and there's enough content in Kingmaker for a party to hit 20th level and still have like a quarter of the entire adventure still, you know, something that they can play through. So it's, I think, with uh, Kingmaker um, and any hex scrolling type thing like that, you want to keep an eye on the, the player characters and whether they're, you know, having fun or engaged. If there's a lot of hex crawling to happen in your game and you feel like it's starting to drag, my suggestion would be to expedite rather than say, you use the GM know if there's an important encounter happening in hex A and, and hex B is empty and all that stuff. So I would just say, uh, run them fast rather than have everybody roll all of their reconnoitering checks and everything like that every time. Uh, just say, all right, these three hexes, I know as the GM, there's nothing going on in there. You explore them, they're all fine. That takes you three days. But then when you get to this hex, something important happens. So we're going to do some some rules there. Um, it's also something that um, too much of anything is going to get dry and repetitive. Like if there's too many wandering encounters going on, if there's too long spent in the dungeon, if there's too many you know rounds played in the Kingmaker or the Kingdom Building rules, uh, just keep an eye on things. And when things start to get dry, uh, that's a great chance for you as the GM to introduce a plot twist or something like that and go into a different mode of play. So uh, that would be my suggestion for that. Uh, Saul, let's see here. Uh, how do you handle the aid DC? Rules as written, or do you adjust to the level of the party? Uh, I usually try to adjust to the level of the party. Um, actually, it depends on what they're doing. Like, sometimes I adjust the level of the party. Sometimes, like, if it's an obvious thing, I'll just go with the rules as written. It, 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 it's flexible, you know. One of the, you you got to improvise. It, it makes sense sometimes for it to be an easy DC, but if it's something harder, I'll bump it up. Cool. Uh, Vanessa, how do you use your monster spells effectively without spending too much time looking things up or remembering to actually use them? That can be really challenging, actually. If you have a higher or mid-level monster that's a spellcaster and they've got just like a huge paragraph of spell names, it's really difficult to remember what all of those are, especially if they're coming from multiple sources. So during my prep phase, what I'll usually do is look at ones from a function point of view rather than a specific task. So I'll say, well, here's the three good AoEs and here's a couple good single target spells and here's a couple that'll uh, maybe make the fight last longer, like you know, putting up a wall of thorns or something like that that'll divide the battlefield, something that buys the creature time. And I'll sort of break it down tactically. And when I do that, I find it's a lot easier to um, just in the moment say, well, all the PCs are grouped together and I want them to start to spread out. So I'm gonna use one of those AOEs or uh, they're approaching my big bad too fast and I want this fight to last. So I'll use one of those stall tactics like fear or wall of thorns or something like that, that will break the party up a little bit um, and, and allow the combat to really sit because you don't want it to go too fast if it's like an important fight. And so by doing that, you don't have to look through this giant block of, of spells to figure out what to do, you can just decide on the situation and choose between a handful. Uh, and if there's so many spells that you're like, how can I remember what all these do? The other thing you can do is just like, oh, they have three AOEs, just pick one. Chances are that fight's not going to last more than four or five rounds anyway, and just pick the AOE that you like the best. Pick the tactic delay spell that you like the best and just know that one and maybe the other ones are sort of in your back pocket so if you get to round seven and you're like uh, okay i'm going to use another aoe they grouped up again eh, you can take a second and look it up and be like oh that's what that does or that's it's a cone not a blast or whatever but i think by just kind of separating those out by function ahead of time you'll save yourself a lot of time at the table um, on something like a virtual tabletop, I might make myself a note that's invisible to everyone but the GM that just kind of lists what I want to do. And when I play in person, I'll have the stat block on a sheet of paper and I'll sometimes highlight or underline the spells in like a different colored ink uh, so that I can quickly go, oh yeah, blues or AOEs, got it. <laughs> Ooh, cool. Those are good. Those are good tips. Uh, okay, here's one I'll take uh, from Divine, Divine Helen. I'm going to mangle some of your... Uh, <laughs> Sorry in advance. Um, my players really enjoy social encounters, downtime, crafting, etc. What's a good adventure to introduce them to these things in Pathfinder 2nd Edition? We really try to include all of that stuff in all of our adventures uh, to a certain extent, but there are certainly some that are more than uh, others. Uh, Kingmaker, for example, is got a lot of just downtime stuff built into the Kingdom Rules and all of that. Um, 
we've got coming up the season of Ghost Adventure Path, which uh, we will be launching, I believe, coming in October. We're going to be talking a little bit more about Season of Ghosts in a couple of hours. But that one is a four-part adventure path that takes place over the course of a year, with each volume being like the first one is in spring or summer, the second one is in autumn, the third one is winter, the last one is in spring. And so there's a lot of really built-in downtime, crafting, social uh, stuff going on in there because, you know, adventures worth of combats and stuff like that, that can be done in a week or two, depending upon how, you know, the group is so. I say Season of Ghosts is a, is a good one to look forward to, but of uh, the ones that are currently available, Kingmaker is probably the one that is the, it's, it's the biggest one. It's, it's kind of a, a ginormous, but, um, but we do try to include that, that content in all of our adventures. Um, all right, so and actually, here's King one of the good ones. Oh, yeah. If Kingmaker is too out there, uh, Strength of Thousands would probably suit you just as well yes. for that one. Yeah, that's a great example. That one actually has, um, uh, you know, built. It's sort of the same thing with season of ghosts, where it's got built-in schedules, like you have entire semesters and stuff that you got to do. And that's that builds up a lot of that with, with downtime stuff. Um, so, if you are running a published adventure, when, if ever, will you cut an encounter? Uh, basically, I I will cut an encounter if I feel like there has been. Uh, if, I, I will cut an encounter if I feel like uh, there has been too much just repetitive uh, combat one way, one right after another. Um, I've done this a couple. I have done this a couple of times with uh, sometimes with dungeons, not always. Most often with dungeons, I will cut like if like if there's like five rooms in a row and you're just walking into a room and fighting something and walking into a room and fighting something and walking into a room and fighting something. I get bored with that real quick, um, so I will sometimes cut encounters from that and just let them find the stuff in the room and move the story along. Uh, so that, that is usually when I will cut encounters is to move things along. Uh, my group is also one that like prefers the social encounters, prefers the downtime. We enjoy the combat to an extent, but like we like a balance. So that, that, that's when I will cut encounters is to, uh, especially if I, if I feel like sometimes you feel like sometimes the encounters are written in just, for the sake of having an encounter, you know, just to have another fight, and occasionally they just don't. And occasionally, just doesn't fit with the character, what the characters are doing, or what the choices have been made. Uh, yeah, that, that, that's pretty much the primary time when I feel like it hits the pacing better. Cool, uh, Vanessa. Uh, let's see here. Uh, the Event Horizon X asks. Or notes. I find my players tend not to think about using their exploration activities uh, in Pathfinder 2. How do you recommend uh, reminding them, engaging them, having them, you know, use investigate, search, and all of that stuff while they are exploring? I think part of the way you can do it, and I do this with new players, is ask them what they're trying to accomplish and then help them translate that into an exploration mode activity. Because sometimes if, say, someone's like, oh, there's a bunch of monsters around here, I'm just going to keep my shield up the whole time. Okay, well, there's an exploration activity for that. So you, you say, oh, it sounds like you're using this action. Um, if they are like, well, I'm just going to, I'm on the lookout, you know, so we don't get ambushed again. Well, okay, then you're using you're using scout. So you can say, oh, say, that sounds like you're using the scout exploration. That's great. Everyone's going to get a plus one circumstance bonus to initiative because you're you're looking out for them. So you kind of just help them along by translating what they intend to do with how the game rules work, and then tell them what the bonus is so that they're incentivized to remember that again. And perhaps a session or two later, they'll be like, okay, I'm going to use the scout exploration. I'm I'm looking out for for bad guys. And then you go, okay, well now they know that there's a bonus. They're more likely to to look for that they're more likely to um try and and make an effort uh even for things like searching or investigating um i think it's pretty important if you're like oh i'm, I'm looking around this room oh okay cool are you looking for like secret traps uh, you know traps and secret doors and things are you looking for hidden creatures what are you exactly looking for and then have them get a you know a bonus or make the roll or whatever and i think that's the best way to get them used to using those modes in that mode. Um, one of the things exploration mode does is it takes what we have always done at the table in a lot of iterations of the game and said, I'm doing this thing and has just enumerated it and given you a bonus. So as long as you let them know that that bonus exists and that mechanic is there, they're more likely to want to start using it on purpose rather than just 
I'm going to look in that desk. I'm going to look in that chair. I'm going to look over around that corner. <laughs> cool. One thing that I've uh, done during development of uh, adventures, play uh, did this a lot in Kingmaker, but also a lot in Season of Ghosts, is uh, hard code that into the text of the adventure so that the GM reading it will know, like, when you're doing this, make sure you know what the player characters are doing to explore because the encounters react if they, they you know if they're searching this happens if they're not searching something else will happen. Um, but a, as for the next question, uh, let's see. There was one I saw here. Uh, da, 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 da. <laughs> oh, here we go. Um, Endred Wintersbane. Uh, if I wanted to bring in a mechanic similar to layer actions, how would I do this in Pathfinder 2E? One of the, my favorite parts of what we did with uh, the second edition of Pathfinder is we separated the monster and NPC rules into their own system rather than making it so you had to build a monster as if it were a player character. Uh, that lets you make all sorts of bespoke abilities for, for creatures. And you can just give those creatures a ability that only works in their lair. You, if we were putting in a prone, we'd say a requirement must be in area 12 or something like that. And then that ability, you just assign it one, two, or three actions or a reaction or whatever, and you just drop it on top of that, that block and you're good to go. Like if it's a dragon in their lair and this lair has a bunch of like stalactites hanging from the, the ceiling and you want it to have like a, a stalactite tail whip knocks all the stalactites down in this big area. You just stack that up as like an area effect uh, piercing damage uh, ability that can only be used once only in its lair and, and you're good to go. A more complicated version of that, I think, would be using the hazard rules, which are, are the same sort of thing as monsters. You can make a hazard uh, like that, like if we're doing the same thing with the stalactites falling from the skies. Uh, you could put that into the dragon's lair and as its trigger, add something like uh, the dragon moves through these squares on the map and then that thing will just automatically trigger and cause these stalactites to fall on a player character where we want to do it. So it's really uh, open to the GM and uh, pretty much anything you want to do, you can either use uh, those two options, I think, really well for layer actions. Here's one I think that uh, is good for all three of us to answer. Uh, so we'll go to Saul first. What is your favorite house rule or something you wish was official? It's, it's sort of a loaded question too, because since we work and we at Paizo and we create the game, the rules we want to play with and the house rules we enjoy kind of often end up in the rules anyway. But what's yeah. one, uh, what's, maybe, maybe someone from designs listening and they're like, oh, that's good. Yeah. Huh. And I have to actually think about that. There was that, you, there was, Vanessa, favorite house rule. Um, favorite house rule. Uh, I, I, am gonna cheat a little because I noticed this is also in the list of questions. Um, I think that when an ability gives you an extra stride, say haste, for example, um, or allows you to stride as part of doing that ability. Well, what if you have another move speed, right? Whether what if you can climb or swim? What if you can burrow? Um, can you do that instead? And I say yes. That is one of my favorite house rules. Uh, it gives a little bit more, um, a little bit more value to those actions. True. However, um, I also feel that it frees up a character concept a little better. If you're a character that's climbing and you're like, well, cool, I want to use, um, uh, you know. I want to use my haste action to fly, for example, so I don't fall this round. That's great. Um, I want to use my, you know, my haste action to to climb this wall faster because I am hasted and I need to get it to the top of the wall. Sure. Um, I think that that's a really good way to open the system up and just make it more flexible and allow the players to do the thing they're trying to do without letting the rules get in the way of that. So that is one of my favorite house rules. Well, uh, I'll answer mine to give you a little bit more time as well. Uh, mine is uh, <laughs> how identify magic works. Uh, I really prefer when a player character is like they're trying to identify a magic item or a weird spell or some sort of supernatural effect going on in the room. I just say, all right, roll a check to identify magic. And I don't say arcana, arcana or occultism or whatever. I let them choose which of those four they want to roll. And uh, not only does that not kind of like tip the hand about what sort of magic they're facing, but it also empowers the players to, you know, choose which role they're going to make. You know, the, the party might not have somebody good at primal uh, or nature skills and primal magic. And so they can still identify magic using the other three magic associated skills. And then uh, behind the scenes, I'll know what the DC is. The player characters don't know that. And I'll just use the, the standard DC for whatever it is. But if the player chooses the right skill, uh, I will drop that by two or five or something like that, just so that if 
to give them a stealth reward that, that they, they chose the right skill to identify the magic, uh, it's going to be easier for them. And I, I won't go the other direction and make it harder uh, because that's, that's kind of restrictive and frustrating. So, but I found that really kind of takes away the, the uh, expectation that you have to have one person good at all four types of magic. Uh, Vanessa, you sounded like you had a fun question. What if the person wants to use craft because they have the the feet for it? Uh, I'll let them do that too. You know, honestly, uh, <laughs> it depends on the situation. But, but if you I have mean... a magic item and and they're trying to use crafting to figure it out, um, sure, I'll probably that in that case, I probably will bump it up a notch. Okay. Um, I mean, same thing too. If somebody says I want to use society to try to figure out this weird magical effect that is that is covering up this entire, you know, farmer's field, uh, I'll mm-hmm. let them roll a society. And that starts getting into the more like the recall knowledge type thing. And I just up the DC sure. if it's something that's really kind of off target. That's cool. Uh, Saul, <laughs> you've had time. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so I, I tried to think of a more serious answer, but I have to be honest. Um, th- th- this, to be clear, is not a rule that I would ever want to be, like, official or anything. But it, it, is, my fav- it is my favorite house rule that we use at my table. Um, so my very first session I ever played of Dungeons and Dragons, uh, of any role-playing game, um, we had this completely. And this is actually the first session of the table that I've, I've, I'm at that has been playing for 15 years. We had this completely random thing that happened where uh, the boss we were fighting at the end of that session got hit by three natural 20s in a row. And the DM got so frustrated with it that he went, you know what, I think this just means that the, uh, uh, no, actually, he rolled three natural ones in a row. And the DM got so frustrated, he went, okay, you know what, this, the world just hates this monster. Uh, so he's just automatically, because he rolled three natural ones in a row, that creature is just blenderized. And it is, it, the universe just hates it, it's taken off the board. And so my... Table has this thing where if you roll three natural ones in a row, whether it's a player character or an NPC, that character is just kind of gone. It just it, and it 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 only happens like once in a blue moon. Like it's happened three times in fifteen years, but it's hilarious every time. And uh, nice. like we've had we we it's usually a minor character. Like it was a minor character the first time, but we had a a boss fight against a giant where the giant rolled three natural ones in a row and got completely blenderized. <laughs> and it's just, nice. It has been some of the best memories. <laughs> That's actually uh, the, the, my the, yeah, the ones that like kind of arise organically just from a group's interaction with the, the game, I think, are the, are the fun ones. Uh, all right, Vanessa. Uh, I had one picked up for you and I lost it, so you're getting a rando. Um <laughs> If players are using investi- this is from the Bardic one. If the players are using investigation as their exploration activity, do you use the recall knowledge role as their initiative if they come across combat? Hundred percent, yes. Uh, I think one of the things exploration mode allows us to do is give us an opportunity to use the skills that we're probably that that player is probably good at because they've chosen to use it as their initiative role, which will make them a little better in combat. So I would absolutely do that if you've got your you know smart character investigator wizard what have you um who's investigating and looking around and realizing that there is a strange slime on the floor let's say um i might let them say yeah that was a really good role that's gonna be your initiative also um you know that that slime trail belongs to the ooze that has just oozed in through the door um and you know that you know the name of it and a couple you know a piece of information about it let's say um so i will i will wrap that all up together i think any opportunity you can use to give the the player the option of using a different skill rather than perception is is going to help engage them. So if they're like, oh, they were doing you know the investigation, uh, even. Uh, I had a character that I just wanted to use uh, acrobatics all the time. So I'm like, I'm going to, when the door gets kicked open, I'm going to tumble into the room. Um, And I just, you know, it's like, well, my acrobatics was like, 10 points higher than my perception. So it just made sense that I would want to like get in there and into the fight real quick. Uh, and that, you know, that backfired a couple times on me, but it was a really fun thing that I got to do. It helped my initiative and it helped us as a party do better. And really just everyone had more fun. So um, 100% give, give your players every opportunity to use non 
perception uh, to, for initiative. Cool. Uh, all right, here's one I'll answer. Is there a sweet spot for monster level, like party level plus one, minus one? Um, I think that it's not that easy to, to really narrow it down to a specific party level. I think that um, the sweet spot is having the party and the, the, the monsters kind of be on equal numbers. So in a case where you've got you know a 10th level party, a group of uh, four creatures is a good good way to go at that encounter because it gives all of the players something to do. It gives all the monsters something to do. And uh, it's just more dynamic. And uh, whether or not those monsters are, you know, eighth level, which would be a moderate encounter, I believe, for a 10th level party uh, or, or, or lower, um, I think is really up to the GM, whether you want to have it be like a boss fight or just something like along the way. So I think that works works pretty well. I think... For solo encounters, it's a little different. It's in, when you have a, uh, an encounter against a solo creature, they, they hit harder because uh, not only are they hitting more often, but they're critically hitting more often. And a single critical hit in an encounter can just suddenly throw everything into the player character's you know um, face and cause them to get really you know in bad shape. So for solo encounters, I think something above the party level by one or two is is what you really want to do. If you go three or four, that needs to be something that the player characters can really plan ahead for and maybe, you know, yes. give them time to soften things up or gather resources or something like that. So um, I also okay. think it's it's dynamic too. So like when you're playing the game and you're you're you as the GM need to keep track of what's going on. You know what is ahead for the player character, the player characters don't. So being able to adjust things like that is, is pretty pretty key. Um, if I if I can, um, oh, oh yeah, go for it. Going to the complete mechanics. In my experience, uh, plus one and two are great for boss fights. Plus one for like a mini boss, and plus two for a regular one. And those three and four are for those big special ones, like James was talking about, where you're never going to ambush the players with a three or four. But if they know that they are going to go ambush the enemy, the BBEG, sure, they can be plus three, probably not plus four, unless they really have something special. Uh, you know, they have a frost brand against a fire elemental or something like that, where you know that they're going to be able to exploit a weakness and get through that fight. Uh, but otherwise, I think those are good. I also enjoy fights with just, a, you know, a several party level minus fours. I think one of the things you want to craft an adventure is not just a series of challenges, but it uh, really hitting story beats. And when you have a bunch of things that are significantly lower level than the PCs, it gives them an opportunity to shine and feel like the big bad heroes that they are. And they're like, yeah, we, we are super cool. So it means that much more when they face that, you know, Hell Knight or something that's average party level plus two. Uh, and and really have a challenge against it, and they go, oh, this guy's super tough because they already beat all the minions, you know, easily uh, because they're so much stronger. And so you want to create these story beats, and and so keep that in mind when you're trying to figure out how strong or weak of a creature to put against the party. What is the feeling you're going for at the table? Uh, and the last little piece I of, of advice I have with encounter building as it goes to to levels, I like boss fights that are like an average party level plus two, plus some number of minions to bring it up to a severe encounter. So that there's a lot of rabble on the board that the PCs can deal with and make themselves feel cool, even in the midst of that boss fight. Cool, yeah, that's good That's good advice. <laughs> um, I think really, one thing that you mentioned that I think is really important for all GMs to do is to give your players a chance to feel like they're getting more powerful. The math in Pathfinder uh, Second Edition is really tight, and if you only ever have them fight like low or moderate encounters, uh, whether they're first level or twentieth level, the feel of that encounter will still be kind of the same. So as you're getting higher level, having them, you know, fight you know trivial encounters more often lets the player characters feel like they're, they they've accomplished something and they're getting better at their job, and that's pretty important. Uh, let's see, Saul. So, um, how do you encourage more dynamic playstyle from the player characters? Uh, for example, if a fighter spends almost every turn raising the shield, striding, and striking, um, is that fine, or do you? Is there a way to kind of encourage players to use their third action more? I guess unusually, or explore other options. Uh, well, um, to be honest, it's it for me. It depends on whether the player is having fun with that. Like, if the player is 
creating their character because that's the, the, the kind of gameplay loop they're enjoying. Um, I don't generally mess with it. Uh, if the player doesn't seem like if the player is frustrated by it, like I, I have had players who are like frustrated because they don't have something to do with their third action. In that case, I'll work with the player to just go through um, and make suggestions, especially on level ups of things like archetypes they could add or uh, choices they could make when they're leveling up to uh, suggestions of new tactics, um, especially building off of other characters. Uh, but mostly I find that if you let the players play around with their builds and if they're having fun, they'll find their own ways of doing whatever strategy is that they're interested in. Uh, there's a lot of freedom to move around in with, when it comes to second edition. So, yeah. Cool. Uh, here's one I'll tackle. Uh, it's another exploration themed one. I don't want to give all of this to you, <laughs> Vanessa. Um, how do uh, you make good use of the investigate exploration activity? Do you expect players to be doing it by default or is it something intended to be just used in situations where the environment cues them into it? Um, when I am running a game and we're in exploration mode, what I'll generally do is sort of uh, the second edition version of Party Order, which we used to always do in the, the, old, the good old days. Uh, I'll say, all right, we're going to start doing uh, exploration mode or whatever. And I'll have every player tell me what their character is doing, whether it's investigating or uh, scouting or whatever. And I'll write that down on a whiteboard or somewhere where everybody can see what each character is kind of doing. And so that's a visual cue that is constantly reminding them. And then as they start encountering things, uh, in, or as they start having these exploration uh, encounters, they will realize that maybe I shouldn't be scouting in this case. Maybe I should be going sneaky, or maybe I should be investigating. And uh, I, I find that keeping those like visually up there, like I guess, again, on a whiteboard if you're playing in person, or like pinned to your GM screen, or in a virtual tabletop, like a window, that everybody can see, um, that helps keep people thinking about how they're going to change things. But also, um, there are specific exploration encounters. We've got a lot of these, again, in Season of Ghosts, where like, if you're investigating a murder, uh, that's going to play out as an exploration encounter. And you basically say, all right, you guys arrive at the murder scene. There's a body draped over this writing desk, and there's a broken wall, and there's like a weird pattern on the wall. And what do you guys do? And in that case, you basically present the party with a specific scenario uh, that they have to choose in an uh, a, uh, activity. Investigate is the, is the obvious one, you know, where they're going to look around for clues, but you also might want to say, like, stealth might be a good one because the PCs don't know that the dead body is, you know, a zombie or something and might jump up as soon as things start, and the person using stealth in that situation will get to roll stealth for their initiative. So uh, that's generally how I use it. I, I also sometimes say, all right, if you guys want to learn more you got to spend two hours investigating and just flat out tell them to use that uh, activity so that that's that's something you can do for sure um let's uh go to a, a everybody question and i'll start with vanessa this time this all has time to, to prepare uh what has been your favorite <laughs> adventure to gm oh my goodness uh of all time or just second edition that's a all time. that's an important distinction in all time okay um any game system uh, my favorite adventure of all time is God's Market Gamble from Pathfinder First Edition. It's a Pathfinder Society scenario, uh, and it was a specific table that made that, that stands out. Um, long story short, uh, it was a bunch of first and second level players showed up, and one like fifth level player I think was the maximum at the at the time because it was one to five, and the fifth level player was kind of sore. He's playing a witch, and he was sort of you know uh, not super happy about the fact that. Uh, he's got all these low bees at the table with him and he wanted, you know, a challenge. Well, God's Market Gamble is really challenging. It's a, it's a interesting investigation. It's a really cool story that unfolds in a, in a really interesting way. And the final encounter is very challenging. And when we ran the final encounter, that character died. Everyone else survived. They ran. But the fifth level witch died. And I thought this guy was going to be really mad at me. And one of the things that helped was to try and make the death feel meaningful by really resonating not just oh not 20 you took a billion damage you're dead uh, but describing the moment as the arrow flies over to his character and strikes through the eye and instantly dead and it's just like and everyone else is 
in shock and then runs and like this huge epic moment uh and you know they go back later and they try to drag the body away to maybe we can help her somehow and then the next day the player comes up to me says that was the best game he'd ever played even though his character died and shows me his like custom painted mini that he had brought and he changed it so that the one eye that the character got shot in now had a scar across it and was all whited out and blind and i was just like nice that's so cool um and what made it cool wasn't just that moment like that was sort of the cherry on top i don't want to go on forever but just the entire table of that game every player was fully engaged in the story and role play in what their character was doing at the moment and how they were reacting to all the new information they were getting and it was just it was a beautiful synergy of players so that is my favorite one of all time nice thank you soul uh, so for me, it was a um, it was a it's a fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons game that I ran. Um, a module off the Dungeon Master's Guild. I believe the creator's name is uh, Oria Some kind of Gaelic. Like, I don't think I pronounced that right. Um, but the, the module is called Murder on the Everon Express, uh, and it combines. Um, it, it's, a, it's a real simple module that's basically D and D done as a uh, combined elements of that with um, murder mystery dinner theater. In that you had an element of one of the player characters could be the murderer, um, and then all of the other NPCs were the other potential murderers. And I just I played it with some. Of, I ran it for some of my friends, and it was just it, there was a great synergy of uh, just the right number of NPCs playing off of just the right number of players. And it ran just the right kind of mystery feeling. It, it, it just it, it it's definitely the best adventure I ever ran. And yeah, that I, I've I've always wanted to write and run more mysteries like that. Cool. Uh, mine would definitely be as I just grabbed it off the shelf. You can see in the background here the, the missing spot is Beyond the Mountains of Madness uh, for Call of Cthulhu. It's this it's it's enormous at the time. I mean, this is like what. I don't know. They don't even have page numbers. They ran out of page numbers. It's like 500 pages long. Um, and it's huge. Uh, the campaign is basically a sequel to Out at the Mountains of Madness. And I ran it for uh, my group. And it took us like a, a year and a half, I think, to finish it. And it was just a lot of fun. And I knew it was going to be my favorite game because very early on, one of the things that happens in this adventure is you are basically recruited into this Antarctic expedition in 1920s nine or whenever it is and you are given these ship manifests like the player characters get these lists of like here's what each ship has in their cargo hold and there's pages of all of the stuff and um actually let me let me see here oh here they are and so like you give the player characters this top half here which is like the in-world typed out manifest and then down below the gm gets to see like what's really going on and what's like missing from it and there's like four there's pages and pages of these things that the party has to like go through even before they leave on their expedition. And the group had so much fun doing inventory in these ships. Like, well, we don't have enough pemmican. We better do something. Oh, look, this big crate of, of, of uh, skim milk is, is gone bad already. Oh, we don't have enough food for the dogs and all this stuff. And so then later on in this campaign progressed, you know, things would start happening. It's like, oh, you didn't find that you didn't have enough fuel or stuff like this. And the party was like, oh, damn it. Now we have to stop in Australia and make pemmican in this like weird warehouse. And, and uh, it, the adventure, I think, goes for about like a good chunk with no combat. You're just on a boat doing things and like weird stuff is happening. And there was there was no real like, you know, action scenes going on. And uh, it was just so much fun. I had this huge like poster board with all of the NPCs because they have this entire exhibition. And as people started dying, I'd X them out. And uh, it was just a lot of fun. Uh, very, very memorable game. And it's something that I hopefully want to run again, but it's a big one. Uh, I lost the lead on who was doing what, where, and when. He uh, <laughs> jumped in. I'll do one, and then uh, we'll just go down the line. Uh, all right. How do you handle the order of operations and ambushes when players are being ambushed? Does their perception for initiative count or detecting the enemy? How does it interact with meta knowledge, etc.? I think that ambushes are super um, elegant in second edition because of the way the initiative rules work. 
Um, mm-hmm. The way you do it is, I mean, the simplest way is like the enemy uses stealth and the player characters use perception and you just roll and the encounter begins. And if the enemies are, you know, good at ambushing, they'll have a higher stealth than their perception and potentially will go first. And then uh, for, you know, obviously for all of the enemies that go before player characters, they'll be able to jump out and stab and, and do all their stuff. But if a player character goes before them, that is basically their perception saying, hey, you notice this dude hiding in the bushes here. You get to do stuff before they act. And it's all basically built right into the way initiative works. So um, uh, I think it's just super, it's, it's so weirdly simple in how it replaces like previous games, surprise round and all that, that a lot of GMs, I think, expected that there needs to be something more. But that's really just it, you know? Uh, your perception determines if you go before or after the ambush. And the reverse is also true when the player characters are trying to set up an ambush for the uh, foes. You know, you'll let them say, all right, you can use stealth. Or even if you want to say, like, well, um, if you want to, like, blend in a crowd and then jump out, that might be a, a deception or deception. a society yeah. check or something like that. Sure. And uh, it just works so well uh, that, you know, it's it's just a lot of, a lot of um, I think, Previous editions overcomplicate how ambushes work, and in second edition, it's just it just just does what it does. Um, so one thing I think, uh, oh, if, yeah, I, if no, I can no. add to that, one thing I think that can help if you find that, let's say, the PCs are like, oh, we're going to try to ambush these people, and then are bad at it, either because no one has stealth or deception, um, or because maybe only a couple people do. One, let them use follow the leader so that they can say, well, at least I can roll stealth even if I'm not that great at it because we're kind of doing what the rogue is doing. Uh, at the same time, right. if they have a really good, say, position or idea or way that they're running this ambush, give them a circumstance bonus on it. It's just initiative. And if it makes their ambush more likely to work correctly, then they'll have They'll, they'll have more enjoyment that that tactic worked. Um, and you'll be more likely to be like, yeah, this worked. I know that I've been a part of a few ambushes as a player. Um, well, you know, I, I rolled like a two and it just stinks because the ambush didn't work and all of us rolled bad and they all rolled high and they, they saw us and that happens. Uh, but you can, you can make it more likely that they'll succeed by giving them a little bit of a circumstance bonus if they're going to run an ambush. Honestly, ambush should be an exploration activity, I think, of like you're laying in wait until the bad guys show up and then are doing a thing. You know, roll stealth or deception, like you said. Uh, get a bonus and, and go for it. All right, we're almost out of time, so maybe a couple more cool. questions. So uh, what is your favorite way to spice up encounters with humanoids to avoid, you know, this conga line of flanking going on <laughs> or is the conga line of flanking okay uh honestly i've never actually experienced a conga line of flanking but that might just be because of the particular structure of my party um mostly i find that the, the, the best way of spicing up uh encounters with humanoids is to think about the personalities of the individual humanoids and what they actually do um so like some sometimes a humanoid is going to be charging in. Sometimes they're going to be, you know, coming up with other tactics. Um, I've had quite, uh, I, you know, I've had some humanoids who tried to take a party member, you know, try to try to grapple a party member and try to take them hostage. And sometimes that works, and sometimes it backfires. You know, you just have to uh, improvise. <laughs> I guess <laughs> it's not very helpful. Well, I think. No, no, that is helpful. I think one thing also that is is a great tool that GMs forget is is the implied threat. So you only have to have one encounter in your campaign where you've got this conga line forming, and then you build this. If, if your party's been doing this a lot, you build an encounter so there's a character who has a beam or a line effect, lightning bolt, and then have all of the monsters in the group be immune to or resistant to lightning, and then have you know, the party gets into this conga line and then, you know, the, the enemy spellcaster <laughs> shoots this beam down the middle of them all, <laughs> hurts all the PCs. Maybe, I mean, negative energy is great if it's a conga line of undead. It'll heal the undead and hurt the PCs. And you do that once and pretty much every encounter you play in the future with that group, if a conga line forms, they'll start going like, oh, wait, we, we got to stagger around. <laughs> and, 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 and so you really can use like this expectation on the player's side that you as the GM are trying to destroy them against them. 
piece of that. <laughs> the other thing, uh, the other thing that you oh, can yeah. do, just add on real fast. The other thing you can do is in in your encounter areas, add interesting uh, elements that they can interact with, uh, such as raised platforms, hazardous bits on the ground, even just really basic traps that are like cal traps or something that are just they're not that bad, but they're kind of annoying um, because that'll make them want to avoid certain areas or even better, push the enemies into the bad stuff. Uh, if, if you've got a campfire, even it's like, oh, you know, what? instead of just, you know, conga lining with the bandits, I'm going to grab that one. I'm going to try to shove them into the campfire because it's cool. And so as you create these opportunities to use the train to your advantage, they're not just going to want to stand there and beat on each other and everyone's being flanked. They'll want to do something more interesting because you've made it really attractive. Nice. Cool. Uh, we're pretty much out of time. Thanks, everybody, for okay. all the questions. Thank you, uh, <laughs> Vanessa and Saul, for answering these questions. Um, yeah, thanks for um, having us. Uh, I'm James Jacobs, again, the Narrative Creator Director. I'm pretty much a social media hermit, but you can find me lurking on the Paizo uh, forums. Uh, and uh, I, I spend a fair amount of time on um, uh, the, the second edition Reddit uh, for Pathfinder. Um, and uh, Vanessa, where can we find you? Who are you? Uh, easiest place to find me is on Twitter at NinjaCatVanessa. Uh, you can also see me in my AMA channel on the PaizoCon Discord, uh, on, on the Paizo Events Discord, I should say. Uh, so go there, ask me some fun questions. It's really been great to engage with people there. Um, or come find me on Twitter. Again, that's NinjaCatVanessa on Twitter. Cool, yeah. And uh, Saul? Uh, I technically have a Twitter too, although I have mostly abandoned it since the muskrat <laughs> took over. Um, uh, actually, it, it more likely, if you're more likely to find me on social media on Tumblr uh, at the same at, so it's at St. John Soul. Uh, so I'm mostly hang out there. I also have an AMA channel on the event Discord, so you can ask me some questions there for as long as Tom's running. Great. Yeah, the Ask Me Anything uh, rooms on uh, Discord are a great place to ask anybody a Paizo question. So cool. Thank you, Vanessa and Saul. Thank you, everybody, PaizoCon. I think coming up next, we've got. Uh, the Lost Omens thing. Uh, lots of questions and secrets. Secrets of Same. Galarian. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Oh, thank you, everybody. Have a good PaisaCon. Thank you for joining us for this installment of the PaisaCon Online 2023 seminar coverage. Brought to you by Paizo and the No Direction Network. For more great gaming podcasts, visit NoDirectionPodcast.com. Dot com.